Well, welcome, everyone. Um, if you haven't had a chance, we have a, apart from singles that are visiting our group, we also have a family that, are, that is visiting our group. I don't know if you got a chance to meet with them. Uh, on the table on my left in the back is Maury and Jessica uh, Latouf. Um, Maury is a student at the Master's Seminary. He is halfway finished with his seminary program for a couple of years more. And they are blessed with two children, Pierre and Oliver. And after they are done with their studies, they hope to go back to their home country, which is Lebanon. And so if you know, we have at least two missionaries, families that serve the Lord on our behalf in that country. And uh, if you haven't got a chance to meet with them, let me encourage you to do that after we are done here. We began a series last week, which we have titled This We Believe, and it's a walk through, a study through our doctrinal statement. And so each week, what I would want to do at some point of time during the course of the evening is read through the doctrinal statement. Uh, perhaps not all of it, but at least a large portion of it just to give us a context. So if you have your booklets with you, I'm going to read a portion of the doctrinal statement. And I suspect because of the time that has gone by that it would probably, uh, our, our time together tonight would probably end a little delayed. I hope uh, that that's okay. But if you need to leave at uh, whatever time you need to leave, uh, feel free to do that. So uh, open your booklets to page number five as we read through the uh, doctrinal statement on, on this Holy Scriptures, Bibliology. It reads this way, we believe and teach that the Bible is God's written revelation to man. It is God's revelation to man. And thus the 66 books of the Bible given to us by the Holy Spirit constitute the plenary, that is something that is inspired equally in all parts, word of God. Uh, we believe and teach that the word of God is an objective there is no subjectivity in it, a propositional, that is, true, truth statements, revelation, verbally inspired in every word. Yes, every word. Absolutely inerrant, that is, without errors, in the original documents, infallible, that is, incapable of errors. So inerrant means there is no errors. Infallible means incapable of having any errors and God breathed. We believe and teach that the Bible constitutes the only necessary and infallible rule of faith and practice and is sufficient for all things pertaining to life and godliness. That language, uh, you know, if you were there on Sunday, comes from 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. We believe and teach that God spoke in his written word by a process of dual authorship. The Holy Spirit so superintended the human authors that through their individual personalities and different styles of writing, they composed and recorded God's word to man. Without error, that is inerrant, in the whole or in the part. We'll stop right there. You know, to say that the Bible is under attack since the end of the first century is to really put it very lightly. Uh, but in spite of relentless and consistent attacks against the Bible, the Bible remains the most sold book in the world. Uh, the Guinness Book of World Record actually estimates that more than 5 billion copies of the Bible have been printed. And men and women at the cost of their own lives have been involved in its translation 
and preaching its message of how guilty sinners can be right with a holy God. In fact, 18th century French philosopher and thinker Voltaire predicted uh, in 1776, just before he died, that within 100 years, uh, that is 100 years from my day, he said, there will not be a Bible on earth except one that is looked upon by an antiquarian curiosity seeker. That is, it would be placed in a case, in a museum somewhere, within 100 years. You see, within 50 years after his death, in an ironic twist of providence, the very house in which he once lived and wrote was used, we are told, by the Evangelical Society of Geneva as a storehouse for Bibles and tracts. You know, my goal today is not to provide an apologia or a defense for the Bible. I'm not going to defend the Bible. An oft-repeated but often misquoted uh, quote uh, to Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century British preacher, is this one. He said, apparently, the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion lose, and the lion will defend itself. So that's my plan for today. Uh, my, my plan is to unleash God's word on us and let it speak for us. You know, normally speaking, there are two basic sources in which we gain human knowledge. Uh, what are those sources? Well, there is our experience and there is reason, reason and experience. Uh, both are important. They are essential to understanding the world that is about us, but both of those things are limited. Uh, they are limited because they leave unanswered the most crucial questions that can be raised. And what are those questions? Uh, questions such as, who am I? Uh, where did I come from? Uh, where am I going? Uh, where is uh, history going? Is there, is there any purpose to human existence? Uh, these are questions that both reason and experience cannot provide an answer for. And so unless there is a third source of knowledge a source that is able to carry us beyond the limits of reason and experience, uh, there is no hope of finding answers to these basic issues of meaning in life. You see, the Bible claims to provide this third source of knowledge. Uh, the Bible, in its essence, is God's revelation. God revealed himself and his ways to you and to me in the Bible. In it, you and I have a direct access to revelation from a personal being who created all things, and this being is not subject to us who are fragile and finite creatures. As Francis Schaeffer, the great American philosopher and, and theologian, used to say, the biblical God is one who is there and who is not silent. One who is there and he is not silent. He has Spoken, And because he has spoken, because he has communicated, he has revealed, I have titled a lesson for today, From God to Us. From God to Us. Uh, what is our plan with this particular doctrine? Well, this is my hope, which is to cover it in two sessions. Uh, the first session, which is tonight, is we will focus only on two words. And those two words are revelation and inspiration, revelation and inspiration. How does God reveal himself to us? Uh, and then, what does it mean when we say the Bible is inspired? And why is it true? That's what we plan to cover tonight. 
And the next week, we cover the criteria for enclosure of the biblical canon. Uh, why do we have only 66 books? Uh, can someone add a book today if they write something and claim that they have received revelation from God? And why do we believe that the canon is closed? So we'll, we'll look at those questions when we, Lord willing, meet next week. And so as we begin, we ask ourselves, what does revelation really mean? Because those are the two words we want to focus on tonight, revelation and inspiration. What, what does revelation really mean? The word revelation comes to us from the Greek word apocalypsis. Uh, the word really means to make fully known. Apo meaning after uh, and kalupto meaning I cover. It means to make fully known or to unveil something. It is to disclose something. It's like when you open a sealed box, the contents reveal themselves to you. And when we think of biblical revelation, we are thinking of God, in a sense, drawing back the veil to show us himself. He's disclosing himself to us. Now, this is important because without God revealing himself to us, we have no way of knowing him. Why? Because the Bible tells us that we're all fallen human beings. We are all sinners. So the question is, how does God reveal himself to us? How does God reveal himself to us? Essentially in two ways or two forms. One is, or two broad categories. One is called general revelation. This is also called natural revelation. And the other is special revelation. Now if you came here tonight thinking that I'm going to exposit uh, or exegete a, a, a verse from the scriptures, well, tonight is a little different night, which is why I'm not going to do that. But we're going to look at scriptures, but we're not going to go into one text deeply uh, for tonight. And so as we think of the ways in which God reveals himself, there are at least two ways, general and special. Um, let's look at general first, which is also called as natural revelation. Now, general or natural revelation refers to the general truths that can be known about God. Uh, they are primarily done through nature, but through other ways as well. And they're available to all of us. Uh, what are some of the ways? Well, we have at least three ways in which God reveals himself to us. The first one is through creation. And this shouldn't come as a surprise. Psalm 19, verse 1 to 4, the psalmist writes, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the works of his hands. The work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Uh, there is no speech, nor are there words uh, where their voice is not heard. Their line goes out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them, he has, a, he has placed a tent for the sun. God reveals himself through creation. Uh, not only that, we, that is Old Testament. But when we come to the New Testament in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It is as if each one of us knows that there is a God in this world, but we suppress that truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Notice verse 20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so, they, so that they are without excuse. Our God reveals himself through creation. Not only that, God also reveals himself 
through providence. Uh, what do I mean by that? It's uh, the, 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 the definition of providence is its divine governance by which God, with wisdom and love, cares and directs all things in the universe. It's his wisdom and love with which he cares and directs all things in the universe. Uh, providence shows us that God is in complete control of all things. Uh, and that control on display, then, is what providence is about. Do we have some scriptures? Yes, we do. Matthew chapter 5, with the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God's providence. God's providence. But thirdly, also, the way in which he reveals himself is through conscience. What is conscience? It is that inner voice that produces in you when you sin, either a feeling of shame or, or guilt. It is that sense that God has placed in every human being which when activated because of sin leads to anxiety or, or despair or even fear. Uh, that inner voice. Each one of us has that. Oh, we can suppress it. Uh, we can push, keep pushing it down so that it doesn't voice itself, but it's there. Romans chapter 2 verse 14, Paul writes, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. Conscience. But notice what Paul says about natural or general revelation. He says that those are enough to know that there is someone who is supernatural that exists. Natural revelation is enough to know that there is someone supernatural that exists. God's law is written on their hearts and through the conscience that God has given them, they understand that the moral law is written on their heart and this moral law is given by a moral law giver. And these things, Paul says, are enough to face God's wrath. Natural revelation or general revelation is enough for you and me to face God's wrath. And the purpose of natural or general revelation is to cause man to search for a fuller revelation. Who are you, God? Would you reveal yourself to me? A general revelation needs to push us or should push us to, a, to search for a fuller revelation. You see, general revelation condemns us, but it does not reveal how we can be right with the holy God. And this is where it's important to understand God's special revelation. God's special revelation. God's special revelation is his more direct means of communicating to people in a variety of ways. And he does that through dreams, uh, through visions, through angels. But he does that most clearly, as the writer of Hebrews says, through the son, through the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and through the pages of the scripture. You see, what you have in front of you, or perhaps you don't have a copy, we'll be happy to give you one. What you have here is God's special revelation. And what I want to do briefly in the time that we have is to provide a brief overview from Genesis to Revelation as to how God communicated, how God revealed himself. And the Bible uh, is not exactly a chronological book, 
but it is a somewhat chronological book in how the books are arranged. And so we are going to consider this short review through the lens of different biblical periods. So let's, uh, let's walk through what those periods are. Uh, first of all, it's the time before the fall. The time before the fall. And we just have a few chapters in the Bible that tell us about that. We have only two chapters to know and understand how God communicated with Adam and Eve. Uh, we, were, we are still in the uh, study of the book of Genesis, but if you were to turn to chapter 1, verse 28, notice what God says to Adam and Eve. He says, it says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Uh, go down to chapter 2, verse 16. Uh, notice what God says to Adam there. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Uh, notice the fact that, that God spoke audibly with both Adam and Eve. What God said, they understood. It was plain and simple. He didn't intentionally try to do anything that would make it complicated or anything of that sort. No, it was plain talking to them and they understanding what God was saying. Also observe that Adam and Eve immediately recognized that it was God who was communicating with them or speaking with them. That brings us to the next phase, which is the period of the patriarchs. Uh, this is immediately after the fall, the same period that all of us are still living in. And there is pre-fall and post-fall, and we are in that post-fall period. This is Genesis chapter 3 onwards. God continues to use this audible method of communication that he has had even in the period of patriarchs. In addition to that, God begin, begins to reveal himself in theophanies. Now, what does that mean? Well, theo, theos means God, and phania means to appear. In other words, these are appearances, physical manifestations or appearances of God. There's a visible manifestation of God in a theophany. You don't have to turn there, but Genesis 16, a chapter that we recently covered, remember the story of Sarai and Hagar? Remember Adam said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. And so Sarai treats her harshly, and she flees from her presence. And in verse 7, it says, Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. Uh, this is a physical manifestation, uh, most likely, and some insist the second person of the Trinity. In the same chapter, it says, Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God who sees. For she said, I, Have I even remained alive here after seeing him? So she saw someone, and the Bible tells us that it was the angel of the Lord. And if you were to study the angel of the Lord, the term, the phrase there, you will recognize that it's used for the second person of the Trinity. And so there was a visible manifestation of God's presence. And then there is the incidence of God appearing in physical form to Abraham and Sarah in chapter 18. And then again in chapter 22 on Mount Moriah. There is also 
the interaction that Jacob has with the angel of God wrestling with him in Genesis 32. And then Jacob calls that place Peniel because he says, I have seen the face of God and my life is preserved. The period of patriarch ends with the death of Joseph. That's the end of chapter 50 of Genesis. And then we come to the next phase. Uh, between this phase, that is end of Genesis, till when the next uh, communication from God happens, it's about 400 to 430 years, depending on how you count those years. Uh, that brings us to the period of Moses and Joshua. We are thinking here of Exodus chapter 1 to the end of Joshua. In this period, God communicates through theophany, something that we've considered before, uh, but some, many of you might remember Exodus chapter 3, God speaking through the burning bush with, uh, with, with Moses. But his primary means of communication will continue to remain through individuals. Uh, you see, Moses is that individual. He's a special man. Uh, and the term law in Israel's history is associated with Moses. Uh, Moses has always been held in high regard. And God chooses Moses to communicate to his people. You don't have to turn there, but in Exodus chapter 4, it says, When the anger of the Lord burned against Moses, and he said, Is there not your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know that he speaks fluently. You remember the context where Moses is trying to come up with excuses for not doing, not obeying what God is telling him to do and obey. And then God says, You speak to Aaron, verse 15 of chapter 4 in Exodus, uh, and then Aaron will speak to Pharaoh. But I will speak to you, you speak to Aaron, and Aaron will speak to Pharaoh. And so Moses is a special man. Um, a similar thing takes place with Jeremiah. If you were to read chapter 1, verse, uh, in, in the first few verses in Jeremiah, God tells him, I will put my words in your mouth, and then you will speak to, to my people. That is special way of communicating in that period. Now this is fascinating in this period, God puts his stamp of approval on Moses as his messenger. And the people also recognize Moses' special status as well. You don't have to turn there, but Exodus chapter 20, it says, All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Remember, this is in the context of them receiving the Ten Commandments. And then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. Moses is a special man. God spoke to Moses and God spoke through Moses. But there's another mode of communication in this period that is introduced. And perhaps we should turn there. It's Exodus chapter 17 and verse 14. Uh, a new mode of communication is introduced the benefit of which we derive even today. And what is that mode of communication? It's written form of communication. Notice verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, write. Now this is the first time the word is mentioned in the Bible, write. This, is, this in a book, he says, as a memorial and recite it to Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Uh, this is the first recorded writing of the words of God in a scripture. Everything that Moses hears from God, that is to be recorded. So he records. 
Uh, God then, it says, gives Moses the book of the covenant in chapter 24. And this book of the covenant has everything that God has communicated to Moses from Exodus chapter 20. And so we have then a new form of communication from God, a written communication. If you were to read Exodus 28, you'll also read about something called as the Urim and Thummim. Uh, these were the stones that were a part of the high priest's uh, ephod or dress. Uh, we don't know how exactly it was used for communication, uh, but we do know that the leaders and high priests would seek to know God's will through those two stones. Uh, we, we've not been given an example of how that took place, but that's mentioned in Exodus 28. And so as we keep progressing through the scriptures, we see similar means of communication, audible, written, visible manifestations, and we see that continued in the book of Joshua as well. And that brings us to the period of the judges. Uh, if you are following, you can follow on the screen or you can even follow on the, in, in the indexes of your Bibles. Uh, this is a period that covers from the end of Joshua. It covers the book of Judges and the book of Ruth. In this period as well, God reveals himself as the angel of the Lord. And uh, if you remember the stories with Gideon and Manoah, uh, the father of Samson, we have the angel of the Lord visit with them. So that's a theophany. That's a visible representation of God. Um, these books that were written in this period, Samuel is credited with writing those books. So Judges and Ruth written by the prophet Samuel. Now, so far we have covered eight books of the Bible. And you're probably wondering if it's eight books and we're at 745, when are we going to get to Revelation? Well, we're going to move fast from here on. Uh, that brings us to the period of the prophets. Uh, this period lasted from 1 Samuel till the last book in the Bible, the book of Malachi. And in this period, God did speak audibly, but his primary means of communication was through the prophets and through their writings. That's how God communicated. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 25 tells us that Samuel was the one who took down, wrote them, it says, in a book and placed it before the Lord. And so the writing and speaking continues until the end of the Old Testament. And in addition to that, we also have records of God speaking through visions and through dreams to these prophets, which in turn then were put into writing. That brings us to another silent period. And this period also lasts for about 400 years. Uh, the last book of the Old Testament and then the first book of the New Testament, which is perhaps either Galatians or James, written somewhere between 46 to 48 AD. So we have somewhere bet between 400 to 475 years gap between the last book of the Old Testament and the first book of the New Testament. That brings us uh, to the ministry of the prophet uh, John the Baptist, who is essentially the last prophet. Uh, turn to Luke chapter 3 as we read an introduction to this prophet. Luke chapter 3. Notice verse 1 and verse 2. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Licinius was tetrarch of Abilene, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John 
the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. Notice the contrast in the verses. I mean, in verse three or verse one, you have these great names mentioned, and then in verse two, at the end, you have someone who's mentioned who is in the wilderness. The word of God came to John almost sounds like thus saith the Lord from the Old Testament. In a sense, you can call John the Baptist the last Old Testament prophet. He is, in a sense, the link between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He connects both the old and the new. Now that brings us to the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we come here, another form of communication is mentioned. Uh, Turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Notice verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Our, Our God's most profound revelation comes to us in a person, in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. God spoke to his people through different ways and different means, through prophets and in many ways. But alas, he speaks to us through his son. Turn with me to John chapter 1. John's gospel, chapter 1. Notice how John begins this gospel. He says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Who is this word? Go down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Notice verse 18, if you go down a few verses. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. The word there is, he has exegeted him. He has exposited, exegeted who God is. He has shown us who God is. Who is this? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll have more to think about this when we talk about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in a few sessions from now. But we'll leave it at that. And then finally, after the ascension of Jesus Christ, that's the period covered from Acts chapter 1 till the end of Revelation. What about after Jesus' ascension then? The audible and written communication continues in this period after his ascension as well. But who is authorized to take it down? At least in the Old Testament, we had the prophets. What about the New Testament? If you're still in Gospel of John, go down to chapter 14 and look at verse 25. This is our Lord speaking to the apostles. And he says to them, 
These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. And so we have already established the fact that Jesus exegeted God, Jesus explained God, Jesus was the way that God communicated to us, uh, and now Jesus tells that it is the apostles through whom the rest of the revelation will come. All I have said to you, the Holy Spirit will remind you. And that's exactly what happened. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12 says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Now, not all apostles were involved in writing the New Testament, but every book in the New Testament either is written by an apostle or someone who is closely associated with an apostle. And so you think of the book of Mark. He was a very, very close disciple of Peter. You think of Luke. He was a close disciple of Paul. Uh, Jude and James were our Lord's half-brothers, very close to one of the apostles there in the Jerusalem church. And so it was either an apostle directly who wrote one book of the New Testament or someone who was closely associated with an apostle. And in John chapter 14, verse 25 and 26, our Lord gives them the charge. And who will remind them? It's the Holy Spirit that will remind them. Notice at the end of the book, as we come to Revelation chapter 22, we know that John wrote this particular book. He's also the author of the Gospel of John and also the three letters that he wrote. And then he's the author of the book of Revelation. But notice what he says at the end in chapter 22. He says in verse 18, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. In a sense, uh, next week we'll conclude on that, but in a sense this is saying uh, this closes the book. There is nothing that needs to be added and nothing that needs to be taken away from this. And we'll talk more about how the process played out for including and excluding books next week, Lord willing. Uh, but here, notice God then has revealed himself, he has disclosed himself, and he has done this through directly speaking, that is through his voice, uh, through theophanies, uh, through miracles, through dreams and visions. He has done this through appointed messengers, uh, that is angels and prophets, in, and he has done this through his incarnate son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and he has done this through what is available between the covers of this book that you and I have. Now, all of this is true. But what is also true is that not everything God said and did is recorded in the Bible. Not everything that God said and did is recorded in the Bible. So we can say what is recorded in the Bible is selected and then recorded with a purpose. And so if you have to ask yourself, what is the purpose of what is recorded in the Bible? Well, here's one way to look at it. The Bible tells us who God is and how he initiated and set in motion a plan for redeeming his people. That's what the Bible is talking about. The purpose is the revelation of God's plan for redemption. The revelation of God's plan for redemption. And this thread, this goal, 
runs through all the 66 books in the Bible. Revelation tells us that God revealed. And then we come to the next word, inspiration. You see, Revelation tells us that it was God that revealed. Inspiration tells us how God revealed. How God revealed. The process that God followed. Now, it's important to understand this because the Bible is not just a great book. It is a great book. It's not just a great story. It is a great story. It is not that it is just a great literature. It is that. But primarily, the Bible is God's word. It is God communicating with you and me. Now, that does not mean that every word that is recorded in the Bible is spoken by God. But it does mean that every word in the Bible is placed there with a stamp of approval from God. It is there because God intended it to be there. One of the tragedies of our generation is the lack of biblical literacy. We almost have to ask people, tell me how you're spending your time in God's word. Oh, it's a tiring day. I didn't get as much time as I wanted to. You know, there are, there are days like that. But generally, the pattern of our lives, if you're a child of God, should be a hunger for God's word. Especially knowing how he revealed himself and what inspiration means, which we will look at. We are to hunger to know God. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation day and night. You can be assured that whatever is there in these pages is there because God intended it to be there, right to the last word. In fact, Paul makes a big deal in Galatians about one word which makes the word seed to seeds. No, he says it's the word seed, it's not seeds. Even something that makes something plural is important in God's word. Every word of God is inspired. How did God bring this about? That is what inspiration is about. So we'll begin there. What is inspiration? And then we look at what is the evidence for inspiration. Now before we go there, I want to mention when we meet next week, I'm going to share also with you ways in which you can study God's word. Some of us are already on a good path. We have a good routine going for us as we spend time in God's word. But for others, perhaps it might be helpful to know some of the other ways in which you can study God's word. So what is inspiration? Let's begin there. Inspiration is God overseeing and directing men to write his words. It is the process by which God, as the instigator, worked through human prophets without destroying their individual personalities and styles to produce divinely authoritative writings. We will have these slides up on our site, Lord willing, tomorrow. But important thing to remember here is that inspiration is God overseeing and directing men to write his words. Now, you're probably wondering where that word comes from. Where does the word inspiration come from? Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And in verse 16, Paul says, and perhaps a verse that is memorized from many of us, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, 
for training in righteousness. And that word inspired is the Greek word theopneustos. Uh, now, this is such a unique thing. Uh, Paul is, in a way, struggling to come up to explain how to share what he wants to share when it comes to how this word came about. And so what he does is he adds two words and makes up a new word. Uh, Theopneustos is not a word that is commonly used in the Greek world. And those are actually two words. And it's one of those words that's only used once in the Bible. And it's right here. And so Paul, in trying to explain what it means that God inspired, comes up with a word to help us understand. And those words mean, theos, of course, means God. The other word means breath. Literally, inspired means breathed out by God. Just as the words I'm now speaking are my words, the words that I'm breathing out, the words that we find in the Bible are breathed out by God. Those are his words. Now that is an extraordinary claim about a written document. No other document claims this particular claim. But how did God do that? Did he speak all the words? Clearly not. We, we've already seen that. But he appointed men to write those words. How did that happen? In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, Peter tells us, but know this, he says, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Uh, this is not you, you thought up something and you said, okay, this is God's word. No, no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. And then he says this, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. There's at least a couple of conclusions we can draw from that statement. One is that God superintended that process. He oversaw that process. He was involved in that process. He was directing men as they wrote these words. That's one. But secondly, men wrote the words. And so you have more than 40 authors coming together through different periods of world history participating in writing what is now involved or included in the scriptures. And what is the evidence then that we have for inspiration? I want to share at least three, and then we will conclude our time. First of all is the internal evidence. The internal evidence. We begin by sharing that the, the plain words of God tells us that they were inspired. In hundreds of passages, I've not counted myself, but I've been told that more than 3,800 times the Bible declares explicitly or implicitly that it is nothing less than the very word of God. God said, or thus says the Lord, is repeated at least 3,800 times in the Bible. Exodus chapter 14 verse 1 says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses. This is God speaking to his Servant. Secondly, is the process that God employed. What I want to do quickly for us is piece together a string of texts to give us a sense of the flow of the inspiration. I hope this is beneficial to us as you see that Bible is not just a loosely connected 66 books that were just put together. No, there is a deep connection between all the 66 books. Uh, it begins by God appointing a servant, a spokesman, and that is Moses. 
Exodus chapter 7, verse 1 and 2 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I make you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh, that he let the sons of Israel go out of this land, and so on and so forth. The first person selected by God as his spokesman is Moses. And then God instructs Moses about the qualifications of individuals that will speak on his behalf. Everyone that will come after Moses, we are told what their qualifications should be. Uh, and you can read about that in Deuteronomy 13 and then even Jeremiah chapter 1. But Deuteronomy 18 also has something to say about it. It is that whoever comes after you, Moses, if he is my prophet, if he is someone I have sent, then whatever he says will come true. If someone comes in my name and tells you, go and worship somebody else, that is not someone I have sent. But if I have sent someone, whatever they say will come true. That is how you will know that this is a true prophet. We find that in Deuteronomy 13. God also reveals to Moses about a specific prophet. Uh, I would love to turn here, but uh, you can listen in as I read this. It's Deuteronomy 18. Here God reveals to Moses about a specific prophet. He says, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And so God is revealing to Moses about a specific prophet. Who is that prophet? Well, you have to come to the New Testament to know who that prophet is. In Acts chapter 3, as Peter is addressing a congregation, he tells us who this prophet is. And he says, Jesus is the prophet that was promised through Moses. Do you see the connection now? So from Moses, who wrote the first five books of Genesis, and the prophets that followed him, who wrote the rest of the scriptures, you have a connection right there in Exodus 7 and Deuteronomy 13. Then we find a connection in the New Testament where God has revealed to Moses that about a specific prophet. Peter tells us who this specific prophet is. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. But don't take Peter's word for it. Also know that our Lord himself claimed to be this prophet. I've mentioned some references that you can look up for yourself in your free time where Jesus confirms uh, his identity as the prophet sent by God. But not only that, people who are around him also share the fact that this is a prophet. And so the people raise that testimony. Jesus himself confirms it. And Peter affirms that in, Gen uh, in Acts chapter 3. And then something that we've already seen. Jesus is the one that then appoints the apostles. Who are these apostles? We have 12 of them. Uh, and uh, a couple of lists are mentioned both in Matthew and, and Mark. And, but, but it is in John 14, verse 26, that we are told that it is these apostles who will be uh, reminded by the Holy Spirit. And then we've already seen that the apostles are the ones or the individuals directly influenced by them that pen the New Testament. So we now know Moses, who was appointed as a spokesperson, spokesman by God. We now have the identity of those who wrote the rest of the Old Testament. We have the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is that special prophet. And then we now know also 
how the apostles were appointed. Now that covers the entire Bible, 66 books. In fact, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 11, Paul says, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. You can be assured, even as you sit here today, that what you have in your phones, in your computers, or in your hand is what God intended for each of us to have. But there's only, not only internal evidence, there's also external evidence. I adapted this from a book called Talk Through the Bible, which introduces the various books of the Bible. There's four lines of evidence here. I want to quickly run through it. Uh, first of all is its production. It's, it's making, the way that it was put together. It says it's one book because the Greek word biblos means a book, and yet it is 66 books. It's not merely a collection of letters and stories and poetry and historical narratives. It's a perfect unity that is composed of many diverse elements. And there is a unified message, they say. I think about this. The Bible was produced over a span of 1,500 years, and century after century, men added to this book, unaware for the most part of each other's writings, and sometimes they were in the dark of what their own writings also meant. 40 different and widely diverse authors, some highly educated, others not, were a part of writing the scriptures. And it was written in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and, and Greek. And it was also written on three continents, the making of the Bible. Secondly, the preservation or its conservation or the way that it was kept together. I already mentioned about persecution and criticism and abuse. The Bible faced all of those and is still virtually intact. Now, there is no ancient document which has manuscript support that even approximates that of the New Testament. Many have sought to ban and destroy the Bible, but their efforts have only been futile. Portions of the Bible have been translated into more than 1,900 languages so far. And it's just speeding up as we get new software that helps us to translate even more quickly its preservation. But thirdly, its proclamation. In fact, over a quarter of the Bible was uh, prophetic when it was written, and these prophecies stand alone in their detail and accuracy and, and scope. Everything that the Bible prophesies about uh, has come true, and there are still many more unfulfilled prophecies. And fourthly and finally, the Bible is unique in its product or its impact. Uh, no other book has so profoundly influenced the culture, thought, and history of the world. As I look around this room, I think of people coming from different countries and continents who have been impacted by the gospel. It has molded and dominated art and history and law and music and philosophy of the Western civilization in particular for such a long period of time. But it's not only changed history, it has also changed lives. If you're sitting here and if you're a child of God, you're here because someone shared the gospel that they read and that they were shared with, and they shared it with you. The Bible then is unique in its production, preservation, proclamation, and unique as a product. But 
Thirdly, and I think most importantly, it's the Spirit's testimony itself. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm going to run, this, run through this quickly, but notice 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 13. If you're interested, let me encourage you to read from verse 6 to verse 13. But for our purposes, I'm just going to read verse 13. Here Paul is writing this epistle. In verse 12, he says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Sometimes you and I can get frustrated when people don't understand, but they do not understand, Paul is saying here, because the Spirit is not in them. In verse 14, he says, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. Isn't it our Lord who says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Don't be frustrated. Don't be discouraged. Be faithful as you continue to share the gospel. Trust the Lord to convict and to convert. Right? What application can we draw from what we have learned? Well, I want to draw at least four of them. First of all, should be obvious. God has spoken. Is there a God in this world? Yes, there is. And he has spoken. He's not remained silent. He has communicated with us. And next week we'll look at Bible's sufficiency, but it is sufficient to note here that the God who created everything that he has spoken. Secondly, God's word reflects his character. Just like God is true, his word is true. Just like God is trustworthy, his word is trustworthy. Just like God does not lie, his word is one without error. It is incapable of error. Uh, just as God is eternal in nature, the Bible tells us, forever, O Lord, your word is established in the heavens, Psalm 119, verse 89. God's word is eternal. It is rooted and grounded in his very character. Uh, thirdly, God's word knows us and understands us better than we understand ourselves. Our hearts are desperately sick and, and wicked uh, who can understand it, says Jeremiah. God's word knows and understands us better than we know and understand ourselves. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word reads us better than we read God's word, always. It knows and understands us better than we know and understand ourselves. And fourthly, and finally, God's written word invites us to trust God's living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that where, why God has given his word to us? How can I be saved, said the Philippian jailer? What was the response from Paul? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. God's word is written so that it would direct us to the Lord Jesus Christ, God's living word. 
if you're sitting here and you're thinking, well, I don't understand what this man is saying. Um, I don't understand why defend or share about what the Bible is. Can I encourage you to think and reflect of the fa- on the fact that God, the one who has created everything and you, has spoken, has spoken through his word, and through his word he calls us to believe and trust in his son, to repent of your sins and to place your trust in his son alone. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the clarity with which your word speaks to us. I thank you for the objectivity that we find in your word. Yes, there are some things that are difficult to understand, but we know that your word does not yield its fruit to those who are unwilling to put efforts into understanding it. And so help us to work hard at understanding your word. I do pray for our small group's time even tonight. I pray that you would be honored and exalted through it all. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.